In our last lecture, we looked at ethics settlement and human capital. In this lecture, we turn our attention to socioeconomic performances. The labor market is a central determinant in assessing ethnic group economic performance. In the results that follow, key patterns in labor market statistics are utilized to examine occupational outcomes for ethnic minority groups in comparison to non-ethnic minority groups. In particular, two factors will be considered, the income and ethnic participation by occupational sector and the labor market participation in unemployment. Income and ethnic participation by occupational sectors have historically been reliable measures for discerning an ethnic penalty in the labor market. The existence of observable ethnic concentration in certain occupational sectors may suggest differential access to the labor market. Therefore, we examine the occupational sectorial distribution by European and ethnic minority groups to ascertain whether there are patterns of concentration. What is observed is that the higher the managerial ladder, the less ethnic minority representation. Among mid-level managers, ethnic minorities have an odds ratio of 0.48. Their chances decrease further when examining high-level managers with an odds ratio of 0.15. Essentially, in all occupational categories in Toronto, which required skilled labor, ethnic minorities fared worse than European groups. Furthermore, an analysis of the data also reveals a worrying income disparity of approximately $16,000 between European and non-European group earners. This suggests a significant income inequality in Toronto's labour market. In sum, visible ethnic minorities continue to be overrepresented in low-wage occupations and underrepresented in managerial positions. Another reliable indicator of an ethnic penalty in the labor market is the differential rates in labor market participation and unemployment. When an individual reaches working age, defined as age 18 and over in Canada, they do not necessarily enter the labor market. An individual who is actively work looking for work is considered to be participating in the labor market and thus will be counted others employed or unemployed on this basis. Within the employed cohort, an individual can be employed full-time, part-time, underemployed, or overemployed. Therefore, belonging to the employed population may not provide a full glimpse into the quality of the job. Individuals, nevertheless, are counted as unemployed if they're without a job and looking for work. When we look at the Toronto data, there is an employment gap between Europeans and ethnic minority cohorts, perhaps indicating unequal access to job opportunities. Of particular note are the differences in the labor force participation rate between uh, Europeans and non-Europeans, whereby Europeans have a participation rate of 83.0% and non-Europeans 76.5%. Low levels of labor force participation by ethnic minorities can be the result of a lower mean salary income and suggest younger ethnic minorities are choosing to continue their education in the hope of reaping the benefits of a higher human capital and to be competitive in the labor market. This hypothesis is reinforced by the fact there is a 3.8% difference in full-time ethnic minority student enrollment among the active labor force relative to European groups.
Furthermore, the unemployment rate of European groups, 4.4%, suggests a distinctive advantage over non-European groups, 8.1%, or an odds ratio of 3.50. Although the gap between the total unemployment for non-European and European groups are not that dramatic, when disaggregated into smaller ethnic categories, there are distinct advantages for European groups versus African groups, Middle Eastern and West Asian, and South Asian ethnic groups. Interestingly, these three non-European groups generally have the highest number of full-time students among the active labor force. Although there appears to be ethnic penalties in the Toronto context, when we look at the national and international context, without controlling for education and fluency, the income disadvantage of immigrants relative to natives is most severe in the United States and smallest in Australia, with Canada falling in between. Once we condition on education and fluency, however, immigrant native income differentials for the United States shrinks dramatically, with the U.S. differentials now smaller than those observed in Canada and sometimes even Australia. For example, without controls for education and fluency, immigrants have been in the destination country for 11 to 15 years, possess income deficits relative to natives of 7.6% in Australia, 15.9% in Canada, and 32.3% in the United States. After controlling for education and fluency, the corresponding income deficits are 2.4% for Australian immigrants, 7.5% for Canadian immigrants, and 2.7% for US immigrants. This suggests that the smaller income deficits relative to natives observed for Australian and Canadian immigrants than for U.S. immigrants are largely explained by the higher levels of education and fluency possessed by Australian and Canadian immigrants. Indeed, after conditioning on these observable skill measures, the relative incomes of U.S. immigrants compare favorably with those of Canadian immigrants for all arrival cohorts, and they compare favorably with those of Australian immigrants for cohorts that have been in the destination country for more than 10 years. Nevertheless, we need to ask ourselves, are ethnic minorities becoming discouraged by the prevalence of ethnic penalties? Withdrawing from the labor market entirely due to potential ethnic penalty in the labor market. When examining the job search, hiring, and workplace advancement of ethnic minorities, this is not a factor that can be easily dismissed. While there appears to be an ethnic penalty for most groups, it should not be necessarily assumed that these are automatically interpreted as estimates of overt bias in the labor market. The differences may observe may simultaneously overestimate and underestimate the impact of labor market bias. That is, the data may overestimate this bias given that it does not include all variables that could account for differences in labor market outcomes. For instance, variables such as university major, quality of education, foreign qualifications, occupational experiences, and individual motivation are not included in the calculus due to a lack of reliable data or tools of measurement. As such, the data should be considered in tandem with the narratives derived from interviews and observations presented throughout the lecture series to discern a clearer reality. The question we need to ask ourselves, nevertheless, is how do we explain the major reasons behind ethnic penalties? 
Foremost, discrimination is one of the major sort of outcomes and thoughts that people have when it comes to explaining ethnic penalties. Discrimination on the basis of ascriptive factors, such as one's appearance, denoting ethnic minority or ethnogender status, is generally regarded as a source of economic inefficiency. Not to mention overtones of social injustice, challenging the normative principles of equality of opportunity espoused in theory by legal and public policy frameworks in most jurisdictions. Neoclassical economic models, with their emphasis on decisions by rational agents, suggest that a profit-maximizing firm will recruit, promote, and set wages according to an individual's marginal productivity. On this basis, in a market economy model, it is irrational to discriminate against a member of an ethnic minority with higher productivity solely on the grounds of ascriptive factors, since this implies a failure to maximize profits. The neoclassical economic model's view that the market is one of impersonal exchange is incomplete, since it underplays the social and psychological elements that are involved. When it comes to the employment of labor, direct personal relations between the employee and employer, as well as among employees, are both involved, and this has a potential for adding a discriminatory element. In this regard, to amply examine discrimination in the labor market, there must first be a recognition that discrimination can manifest itself in two forms, within statistical and exclusionary dimensions. The theory of statistical discrimination is an information-based theory, assuming that employers are victims of imperfect information. In practice, statistical discrimination may occur when an employer fails to fully assess the relevant occupational abilities of a member of an ethnic group and makes generalized assumptions about the value of their human capital. This can be operationalized in multiple and overlapping forms, with one example being the employer, consciously or not, perceiving ethnic minority status as a proxy for lower quality of human capital. This may be the experience of the hiring manager of a, of a company who found that particular members of an ethnic group may have either higher or lower productivity than other workers with a similar qualification. Ethnicity is therefore transformed into a proxy signaling potential future productivity by members of the same ethnic group, with hiring patterns adjusted accordingly. Another avenue for discrimination arises when an employer undervalues an ethnic minority's formal qualifications. While educational attainment may signal to an employer of one's potential abilities and promise, this signaling may be disjointed with the presence of preferential treatment in education for ethnic minorities. One of the consequences of preferential treatment in education for ethnic minorities is that it may signal to employers that ethnic minorities may not be the most productive or highly prized talent. Amongst numerous enterprises, it was quietly agreed that ethnic minority candidates may not be the most qualified given the preference of, of preferential treatment in education. In a Toronto case, while human capital theories have been instrumental in forging Canada's immigration system, favoring migrants with high educational attainment, who as the underlying theory goes are more equipped to contribute to Canada's economy, 
foreign degrees earned outside of North America, Western Europe, and select Commonwealth nations are often valued less than a domestic education. Proving exclusionary discrimination is a more difficult proposition than statistical discrimination given its predominantly anecdotal nature. Exclusionary discrimination occurs when a member of an ethnic group is impeded at a potential or current position due not to their capacity, but an external barrier that artificially inhibits their growth. To test the hypothesis that one's visible physical appearance can play a major role in increasing the labor market penalties for ethnic minorities, in this table we look at the educational and occupational outcomes by non-European ethnic minority groups visibility index in Toronto. Members of an ethnic minority group who self-identify as visible minorities were categorized into a scale reaching as high as 95 to 100% to as low as 75% and below. For example, since 99% of Bangladeshis reported they were visible ethnic minorities, they were thus classified within the 95 to 100% cohort. Conversely, since 94.7% of Grenadians reported being a visible minority, they will be subsequently placed in the 90 to 94% cohort. In effect, the index gauges ethnic minorities' self-perception of their visibility in terms of physical appearance. What is observed is that the most visible ethnic minority group's cohort, the 95% plus, have a higher odds of being more educated than Europeans and other ethnic minority groups, both in undergraduate and graduate education. However, this cohort is more likely to be unemployed than Europeans and other non-European ethnic groups and share a similar size ethnic penalty as other non-European ethnic minorities when it comes to their demographics in managerial and professional positions as well as salary. What this suggests is that discrimination on the basis of physical appearance is not a widespread phenomenon to explain the paradox of ethnic minority development in Toronto. This is not to deny the existence of discrimination on the basis of physical appearance, but rather to suggest that this type of discrimination alone is not a major factor explaining varying educational and occupational outcomes between ethnic minorities and the dominant group in Toronto. To test whether a linguistical handicap is a major factor explaining Toronto's ethnic penalty, in this table, it looks at the educational and occupational outcomes by ethnic minority groups who reported English as their first language. Non-European ethnic minorities who identified English as a first language were scaled in 20% intervals. For example, since 99.7% of Trinidadians reported English as their first language, they will be placed in the first quintuple, the 80 to 100% of the linguistical index, with each ethnic minority group thereafter following this categorization pattern. While categorizing ethnic minority groups on this basis may not fully gauge their linguistical proficiency, since, for example, a member of a Bangladeshi ethnic minority group who, in spite of 8.2% of their group members reporting English as a first language, may be pro completely proficient in the language. Nevertheless, it can provide a proxy for potential linguistical discrimination. 
what the table suggests is inclusive evidence uh, to suggest a linguistical handicap is a major contributing reason for Toronto's ethnic penalty. The lowest quintuple, 0 to 19%, seemingly have one of the highest odds of educational attainment, both at the undergraduate and graduate levels, compared to European groups and other non-European ethnic minorities. Moreover, while the lowest quintuple also have the highest rate of unemployment, their demographics in managerial and professional positions exceed all other ethnic minority groups. And in fact, they have achieved convergence with European groups in professional positions. The situation may be, may be the result of the lowest quintuple benefiting from the secondary labor market. Thus far, it appears that examining discrimination on the basis of physical appearance or a linguistical dimension separately has yielded inconclusive evidence to suggest that there, there is a major role in explaining the ethnic penalty via discrimination. Nevertheless, when examining at-risk groups for discrimination, those who are 80% and above the visibility index and in the lowest quintuple of, on the linguistical index, we do see some fascinating results. As this table illustrates, at-risk groups who make up 12% of Toronto's population have a higher educational attainment than European groups, but they suffer an ethnic penalty in each labor force category, except for their demographics and professional occupations. When removing the Chinese cohort out of the equation, whose presence may skew the figures given their strong secondary labor market presence, the numbers are even more staggering. At-risk groups, now totaling a population of 182,000 or so, approximately 4% of the total population, still have a higher educational attainment than European groups with undergraduate educational attainment at 21.8% and graduate level attainment at 8.4%. However, they only have a 70% labor market participation rate and a 10.5% unemployment rate. Only 0.8% and 11.2% are employed as high and mid-level managers respectively, and 15% are categorized as professionals. Their mean salary is about $34,282, nearly $20,000 less than Europeans. While at-risk ethnic minority groups do suffer a larger ethnic penalty than other ethnic minorities in Toronto, this cohort does appear to be groups um, that are relatively recent arrivals to Toronto in the 1990s onwards. Another explanatory factor to consider to explain uh, ethnic penalties in the labor market are social networks. The network concept of labor allocation demonstrates how social segregation can create labor market segregation through network referrals. There are numerous examples illustrating how one social network, whether strong or weak ties, play a major role in the job search and hiring process throughout studies. The point remains in these scenarios, discrimination no longer has any cost to the discriminator, but rather reaps social rewards. Since many high wage employers depend on referrals by their existing labor force, who targeted their positions by relying on word of mouth advertising by its employees, coupled with the fact many unskilled or low-wage vacancies usually attract greater mass advertisement, 
indicative of the type of jobs available in employment centers, the job search strategy is simultaneously a choice of wage offer distribution. Moreover, when ethnic minority members do not have vast pre-existing resources, especially in an ethnically segregated labor market, the odds of these members attaining high-wage, high-status jobs depend on their access to a heterogeneous social network. In the, in the study of the ethnic penalty, less than 10% of the ethnic minorities found jobs through social networks, potentially suggesting major differences in minority and non-minority experiences. In the instances where minority members have not been fully accepted into a social network, that is, they possess low social network capital, the odds of a member of an ethnic minority group attaining a job that is high wage and in the professional or managerial class decreases tremendously. More specifically, this general axiom seems to follow. Minority candidates with high levels of human capital, but low levels of social network capital, would generally be less active in the labor market. Minority candidates with low levels of human capital, but high levels of social network capital, will be active in the labor market, but have a slower pace of workplace advancement. And finally, minority candidates with both high levels of human capital and social network capital are positioned best to find job opportunities and have a faster pace of advancement. Alarmingly, when the job search process fails to match high human capital of ethnic minorities with suitable job positions, it sets an important precedent for future generations. The attitudes towards the job search and an overall economic marginalization of the ethnic minorities may disadvantage the performance of the future generations. This sets the stage for potentially producing a continued ethnic penalty, reinforcing a structured inequality among ethnic minority groups in comparison to the dominant group. Another explanation behind why ethnic penalties may occur is due to working culture. The predominance of informal contacts and referrals and hiring strategies maintains homogeneity at the organizational level and strengthens the power of non-minorities to steer and shape the working culture. Working culture includes patterns of informal social behavior, such as communication, decision-making, and interpersonal relations, which is often dictated by the dominating group's values, assumptions, and norms. In fact, in the ethnic penalty study, among half of interviewees who perceive they fit into the working culture of their place of employment, they reported greater opportunities for advancement within their current company. The interview narrative suggests that a supportive relationship with one's supervisor plays an important role in encouraging ethnic minorities to perceive a sense of belonging with the working culture. Now, support can take the form of performance feedback, career guidance, and providing assignments that promote the ethnic minority workers' development. Of course, we must point out that identifying differential treatment in a working culture is a contentious proposition, since minority and non-minority groups often perceive the same working environment differently. Both groups may live in different perceptual spheres within the organization and thus often have conflicting perceptions about the working environment and their ability to participate in the working culture. Of course, those who experience differential treatment in the working culture 
and who seek to bring about change must do so within a structure of inequality that may respond with denial and resistance. This has the possibility of further compounding ethnic minority disadvantages in the labor market. In a study looking in New York City, Melbourne, Toronto, Shanghai, and Beijing, ethnic minority and non-minority participants working in large corporations were asked to describe their levels of confidence at primary school, high school, university, and present day. Non-ethnic minorities self-reported higher levels of confidence earlier in schooling than ethnic minorities. In fact, what, we, what was observed is that those who reported higher levels of confidence earlier in schooling earned better wages at present and were promoted more quickly. What these findings may suggest is that another explanation behind the ethnic penalty is understanding the role of confidence. And it suggests further that we need to stress confidence building activities at an earlier age. Such activities should be strongly encouraged both in formal schooling and within the family unit. This is particularly the case since we see that those who have lower levels of confidence, often we see ethnic minority groups in this sort of category, generally have lower levels of wages when it comes to the labor market. The last explanation why ethnic penalties may exist involves social trust. Social trust generally refers to trust among strangers rather than family members, friends, or acquaintances involved in multiple interactions. There is considerable research concluding that one of the major challenges of an ethnically heterogeneous community is that it may potentially reduce social trust between dominant groups and ethnic minority groups. For example, we can claim that a neighborhood with a high level of ethnic diversity requires a high level of social trust to bridge between various groups than a neighborhood with a low level of ethnic diversity. Thus, the resources and investment required to bridge groups dissimilar from the other can be tremendous, especially when the norms, values, beliefs of the other are in conflict. Social trust applies to the job matching process since prospective employees and the employer must have a minimum level of trust in each other's accountability before they can mutually engage in working together. One can hypothesize the greater the social trust between prospective employee and employer, the greater confidence that both parties will have a potential working engagement. What this may imply is that a decline in the levels of social trust in a community between ethnic minority groups and the dominant group can be accompanied by a decline in the willingness of employers who are risk sensitive to differences as demonstrated throughout the ethnic penalty to hire ethnic minorities who may be perceived not to share common norms and values. This is especially important in cases where the prospective employees are found via open market searches, such as direct application. During a cold interview, where the employer is meeting the interviewee as a virtual stranger without the benefit of a social network referral to vouch in a sense, employers are going to rely on perceptual information gathered during the interviews, reinforced by the formal application information to gauge social trust levels. In fact, we can reinforce this idea by pointing out that an individual's trustworthiness in the interview can be assessed by their appearance, attitude, or responses. 
The situation becomes cyclical given the presence of income inequalities between ethnic minorities and the dominant group. It is plausible to argue that one of the main reasons behind the decline of social trust among ethnic minorities relative to the dominant group is due to income disparities. Put succinctly, social trust involves a risk element. Ethnic minorities who have a lower income may be at an elevated sort of social distrust with the dominant group since they do not have a large risk elasticity, so to speak. That is, they may not be best positioned to survive risks. When it comes to the job matching process, this means that the potential employer may sense lower levels of social trust with an ethnic minority candidate and thus may be less inclined to hire that individual. This concludes our lecture on the socioeconomic performances of ethnic minority members. In our next lecture, we'll be looking at inter-ethnic cooperation.